Hello, hope you're having a great week working with your players on the grass. In this episode, I'm joined by the newest member of the PDP team, James Coots. We were very much that we had to adapt to whatever the game threw us. That was a big thing that Sean would say. So whether that be right, okay, now instead of you being deeper in screening, you have to step in and play. Um, whether it be a, a tactical change, the amount of times in a game that he would allow us to change the shape. Um, um, the first ever time I did it, I was, it was in a reserve game um, against Swansea and I asked because I felt that very much back then a lot of teams still played conventional 4-4-2 um, where we were very much possession based um, and we were playing like a 4-4-1-1 but felt that if we had someone in deeper as a six and two midfield players we could really control the ball in the middle. Anyway, I asked Sean to, to go and do it um, and he said, do you think it's the right thing to do? I said yes, and I was captain at the time, and he was like, go and do it. In this podcast, we explore some of James's playing and coaching journey. I was keen to ask who has influenced his coaching style and what are the key bits he's learnt along the way. James has recently joined the PDP as a coaching advisor, so it's great to learn more and share with the PDP community. Hope you enjoy the show. Player Development Project is an online learning platform designed to support your coach development. With a network of well over 100 experts in youth development, psychology, culture, motivation, elite football and more, we have a massive range of content to support you. Whether it's masterclass discussions with top experts, live sessions, session plans, PDP magazine or our library of Q&A videos, we have content to suit your coaching experience. We also have an online Slack community for you so you can connect with coaches all around the world. This is a place to share ideas, upload sessions, ask questions of our team, and be constantly engaged in coaching conversation. In a special offer to our podcast listeners, we would love to offer you an exclusive 30-day free trial. Head to playerdevelopmentproject.com forward slash podcast, or click the link in the description of this episode. Welcome to On The Grass with me, Dan Wright. Uh, today, I'm joined by James Coots. James, how are you? I'm good, mate. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for giving up some of your time for us today. We're, we're going to delve into a bit of your kind of playing background and how that's kind of morphed into some of your coaching background. So 60 seconds, tell us kind of who you are and, and what you're doing, maybe what you've done as well. Um, okay, so come up through the academy down at Southampton um, from the age of 10 to, to 17, where I then went on to, to Bournemouth, um, played Played in League One at Bournemouth for a couple of years, um, then dropped into non-league, fell out of love with the game, to be honest, for a while, but always had an interest in my own coaching academy back, back in the UK. Came out to England, um, Australia six years ago now, um, started coaching, got into technical director at a club for a season, um, and been player, player head coach for four years at two different teams and just gone into a player assistant coach role just to finish off my playing career, hopefully. Fantastic. As well as joining the PDP team, you left that off your, off your list. Sorry, well, that was number one, obviously, joining <laughs> the PDP team. Fantastic. So hopefully this will give people a bit of a flavour about your kind of approach and uh, maybe some of the things you've learned on that journey. So just to maybe explore some of that playing side a bit more, um, talk to me about like when you first became aware of of kind of coaching and the impact it could have so obviously people start football because they fall in love with with an aspect of it you know whether that's dribbling or ball striking or big tackles or big saves but when did you really become aware of kind of the moving parts and, and how they kind of interlink and, and and learning I guess um probably at Southampton to be honest Southampton was such a even back then was an amazing place to to grow up and play and some of the players who come through the system. But I just remember little things that we used to do um, as kids. Um, we used to have a, a hundred juggle rule before a lot of sessions. I mean, even at an under 11, under 12, if we couldn't juggle both feet a um, hundred times, um, then we would be in a box on the outside and we won't be able to start training until we could do our juggling, um, which I think, looking back and at the time was very much to to promote being able to use both feet obviously in control and first touch however I think a, a big part of it as well was well if you can't do it then you need to go away and practice and make sure you can do it because I know that there are some parents who certainly wouldn't want to be driving an hour or sometimes an hour and a half two hours if their child was just going to be practicing juggling a box 
from the side of the session. So that was something that really, really early on it stuck with me. Um, and there's also a guy who had down there who, when we were doing team talks, um, and he was the only one at the club who did it. So I presume it was his own personal thing, but he would, he would always sit us down and go through our individual role prior to the game. And after the game, give us a quick snapshot of our individual performance, but in front of everybody. Um, it's something I found really interesting because he was certainly one as a 15-year-old. If you've had a good game, you're all for that process. That's not a problem. If you've had a shocker of a game, it's something that you're kind of thinking, oh, no, please don't do this one today. But, um, mm. yeah, really interesting, that kind of um, approach to it, even even back then about nearly, oh yeah 20 years ago oh my god 16 to 20 years ago now this was a long time away um, yeah and we and with the kind of um elite player performance plan and, and academies individualized approaches become more common but i suppose in, in that era that would be quite unusual for every kid to have an idea of what what they were focusing on and then um you know reviewing it after a game that would that be quite an unusual practice do you think back then i can't think when I was playing, certainly not at that level, um, that that was ever used. It was much more kind of team focused or even result focused. Yeah, it was. It was something that I think it, Saints at the time. It was because we had so many good young players coming up through, and that was a time where you started having the foreign players come over. We had the satellites in other parts of the country, um, and you started having foreign boys come in, and it was very much, I think, a big learning big learning part um you had obviously the academies were new so we went from school of excellence to academies you had even nutrition that become a huge part of it um and yeah the individualized stuff like even individual individual reviews that obviously now are such a huge part of it but i can still remember as a 13 year old sitting down going through my individual plan and and what i had there at the time which i think was probably ahead of the game a little bit um, and it was, it was something that really opened my eyes up to that even though it's a team sport, it was really about maximising my potential as a player. And obviously that was a, a key role for the coaches, I believe. Mm. And as you kind of went along that journey and it became um, what Dave Wright would call the pointy end, as it became kind of nearer senior <laughs> football and it became, you know, perhaps more results focused, how did that individualised approach stick with you or become you know more prominent or less prominent as you kind of move through age groups um is as i got to yeah when i went to bournemouth i think it really then went on to another level um where you were very much i guess coming from southampton where i would be around the yts boys and during school holidays and things like that um when i went to bournemouth it was training with the seniors quite early on as a 16-year-old and going to sit on the bench in an away game in League One up at Swindon as a 16-year-old was very much an eye-opening experience. Um, but I was so fortunate with the coaches I had, um, and in particular, um, Sean O'Driscoll, who really had a, I think now, looking back, he had a belief in me at the time. I wasn't probably that sure. Um, but he had a belief in me as a player and he really pushed me on the other side of the game as well, on the thought process, on the mentality of a player and what it takes to be a player. And he he did something which I only found out later on because I've become quite good mates with um guy, but he he kind of gave me a mentor within the team, one or two mentors who were told to make sure I kept on the straight and narrow, to make sure that they gave me some peer coaching if they felt I needed it, which again, I think at the time, I know it's something we talk about on the PDP and in the Slack community about peer coaching and what that might look like and how valuable it is at times. And yeah, and that's something I know as a 16, 17 year old, I, I loved it. I was like a little sponge with those older experienced boys. It was awesome. Yeah. And so I think Sean's been kind of spoken about, you know, through uh, different platforms and different uh, websites and as, as maybe a coach that was ahead of his time. What, what were some of the, the approaches that he tried um, with you guys that kind of stuck with you or maybe influenced your coaching? Um, Sean, there's a couple of ones. And actually, I put an article on, on Slack not long ago about it because it just resonated with me 
um, a couple of points. The main one with me, which is stuck with me all the time, is about knowing your why and understanding your why, um, why you're trying to do something, why you're trying to achieve it, and then go into, I guess, the how, etc. Um, so he would constantly ask you why as a player. Um, and it's something that when you first hear it as a player or even as a coach, it can be quite a threatening question. If someone's asking you why you're doing something, natural instinct is that it's because I'm doing something wrong or what have I done wrong here? Because you grow up in a, I guess in coaching and football back then was very much like, well, why did you make that pass? And it felt a lot of the times that people would ask that after you've made a mistake where Sean was very much, he would just sometimes pull you aside and be like, Cootsie, why did you play that? And you might freeze a little bit and he'd be like, no, tell me why. And you might, for example, say, well, I thought the right back was overlapping at the time. I thought he should have been there. The space was there for him to go there. And if you gave him an answer with rationale behind it of what you were thinking, perfect. Then I think he really would work with you as a coach. Um, then whether the decision was right or wrong, that's something you can work on. But the fact that you had a why behind what you were trying to achieve um, was really important to him. And I, I think that's something I've certainly taken along with me and on my journey was about, um, yeah, understanding why you're trying to do something. So I guess in talking nowadays, people talk a lot about being proactive um, within your play on the ball, etc and that's something that I, I promote a lot about reading the game two or three seconds prior etc and Sean was very very big on that um, and that's certainly something that stuck with me along my journey um, and yeah so just the other one on, on here with Pete the the belief he instills in his players to change something in the game in game time so he would he would absolutely lose it at us if we saw something on the pitch and we didn't change it give so us an example he, give us an example of what you mean uh so we were i remember a game we were playing away we we're um luton um at the time um we playing against a guy called steve howard who was six foot four big strong physical we'd done some work on him um throughout the game in terms of um screening him um, and he like ran our, our centre mid, um, and yeah, and see if I played. And then he kind of went off and, and got injured, and I forget what it was I'm sure it was injury. He went off. Anyway, in terms of our game plan, our, our then kind of six, I guess we call it, in terms of screen and midfield player, he kept, I guess, going on within that. Where we were very much that we had to adapt to whatever the game threw us. That was a big thing that Sean would say. So whether that be right, okay, now instead of you being deeper in screening, you have to step in and play. Um, whether it be a, a tactical change, the amount of times in a game that he would allow us to change the shape. Um, I remember the first ever time I did it, I was, it was in a reserve game um, against Swansea, and I asked because I felt that very much back then, a lot of teams still played conventional 4-4-2, um, where we were very much possession-based, um, and we were playing like a 4-4, one one, but felt that if we had someone in deeper as a six and two midfield players, we could really control the ball in the middle. Anyway, I asked Sean to to go and do it, um, and he said, "Do you think it's the right thing to do?" I said, "Yes," and I was captain at the time, and he was like, "Go and do it." So he was very much, if you understood why you were trying to do something within the game or even bigger and a tactical thing, he would back you, and that was something that I really took away with me that he really wanted players to understand why they were making the decisions and then gave you the autonomy to go out and do that and that's something that I guess is, has certainly come along with me knowing and playing under and seeing some coaches who who sometimes say like yeah I want my players to express themselves and and go and play with freedom where it seems like that yeah, you want them to express yourself if it comes off, if you get the result you kind of want. Where if not, are you like, is it sometimes where we we talk after and we're reactive based on what the outcome is of what they're trying to do, as opposed to the intent of what they try to do? Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So I think 
I think what I'm hearing there is someone that's really teaching players. So rather than perhaps having a, a rote system where, you know, this player does this and number two does this and it, work, it works like this, what he's saying is, you know, we're, we're playing that game that's in front of us. And so through the kind of intervention that you spoke about, about asking why, he's just trying to maybe spark that curiosity of why is that happening? What are we doing about it? with the ball, without the ball, on the ball, off the ball. And so that sounds like it would carry through to, to game day. Whereas, you know, if you're playing against a big target number nine, you might defend like this. And if it was different, you'd change it. And I suppose that he's kind of, um, there was a really nice phrase in one of our masterclasses with Ben Bartlett, where he talked about taking the crown off the coach and putting it on the player. And, and that's, that's oh. kind of what I'm hearing here. Like, you know, it's not all e coach-driven ego. He's saying playing the game you, you can fix the problem in front of you yeah he was a hundred percent that he um he loved that he wasn't big on tactics in terms of and people probably think seeing his teams you would think that he was because they play such good football but sean which i guess i've taken along with me is that formations are where you put players names on a whiteboard at times um, and then if you do pictures on the pitch very rarely it might be where you set off at kickoff, but it's such a fluid game and it's changing all the time. And that's certainly something that has gone along with me. And when I was um, technical director at a club over here and you would hear parents say, my player, my son is a seven or an 11. And I would always ask them why. And they'd be like, well, that's always where they played all the way through. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying they're not a seven or 11. But I think sometimes people get pigeonholed into a position as opposed to looking deeper at their identity as a player. And then coaches will, at times, what a, what a seven is to me and what an effective seven is to me might be completely different to you. But mm -hmm. the player might have the same characteristics. So I think pigeonholing them into set positions at times can be quite dangerous. Yeah. Um, where if we focus on the characteristics of those players and really enhancing and seeing how we can improve and develop that, then you're going to get a more rounded player, which hopefully in turn can play numerous positions or really master the one or two positions they do play. Mm. And that would tie into, again, some of our PDP messages around kind of uh, super strengths or outstanding attributes. Like what what is it that you as an individual bring to the team? And that doesn't necessarily make you a 10, an 8, a 6, whatever. It might mean yeah. that you are just a good footballer. And if we get you into these areas of the pitch, that you'll be able to do more of this good stuff, which helps us get success. Um, yeah. I think I think speaking to a lot of coaches, that, that's something that seems very common with young players. Like they are a 2, a 9, a 7, whatever, from under 8. And it's quite, it's not something that I can think back when I was young that, really existed I just remember us playing I don't remember me yeah. and it also intrigues me when you watch really young teams under nine kids are happy to play everywhere on the pitch like they will just yeah. happily to get on the field and then when you get to maybe yeah. teenage age group it's like oh well, I couldn't play right back and I'm like well it's, it's very similar to right yeah. wing it's just a bit further back like it's <laughs> if, you, if, you, if, you, if you can play the one you, sh you should be able to play the other but there's something that happens during those age groups where kids decide or or maybe even parents decide that no that that isn't your position anymore so that yeah that's that's interesting to to kind of hear um not so much focus on yeah. tactics more focus on individuals to bring this kind of up to more kind of modern day how is that yeah kind of um filtered into your kind of coaching philosophy or coaching approach now with with that kind of um focusing on individuals and maybe being more player-centered yeah, it's um, it's something that I've certainly it's evolved as I as I've started the coaching. Um, I a lot of the stuff on PDP people talk about when they first start coaching to how they are now is obviously very different, and how it's all about for me the players now and the player. Where when I first started, I wanted to play like Guardiola, no matter what. I wanted to play this Barcelona style football. Well. In reality, the team we had was bottom or second bottom all the time and we didn't have the players to do it. So that soon went out the window um, because it was results driven, I guess, at that point within seniors. But yeah, player-centred approach is something that I, I'm very passionate about. And even within senior football, I get quite frustrated there. And I, I do think it's changing now because we've got some really good young coaches coming through or good coaches, not just young coaches, coaches coming through both over here and you see all over the world now. 
um, who really put the player at the center, I believe, at a lot of things. Um, so it's, it's as a coach being comfortable putting your ego aside um, and putting the player first and, and how you can improve that player. So, yeah, I guess in where I was last year at North Geelong, we had a very much a player-centered approach. They had their own IPPs. They did video analysis after games individual. Sometimes we'd do unit work, um, individ- um, sorry, video work with our units, whether it be back three we played or defenders, midfielders, attackers, however you want to do it. Um, I found real, real value in that. And um, with players as well, it's the player-centered approach. I found that we once we gave the players the options of what they wanted um, to do and how they wanted to communicate, that then became quite so. For example, in a practical sense, after a game, it can be quite emotional, both for coaches and players. So we would give them till we played on a Saturday, on a um, by Monday's training. They would either have to text me, uh, call me, they could email or they could do their video analysis. So the email, there'd be a little bit of just a, a game review um, that they would go through or they could just send an informal text giving me a breakdown of what they saw, how they felt, etc. Um, or they could do video. And modern day players, a lot of them love the video. Um, and that was a real powerful tool to then show them some really good things some really things that they could look at and look to maybe um, improve or look at improving for the next game or just, um, yeah, the unit stuff as well. So bringing that player-centred approach into seniors, it wasn't anything about tactics. It wasn't anything about playing style or anything like that, even though that's a huge part of what we coached and how we wanted, or the style was a huge part of what we wanted to see within the team. For me, it was maximizing the individual was the most important thing. So hopefully having a growth mindset or a mindset of them wanting to learn was a real important one because it's very hard, in my opinion, to have a successful player-centered approach or or work with individual players about their individual game if they're not open to the reality of where they're at um, and being vulnerable in being honest with themselves, really. Um, so that was something, yeah, we brought in this year in particular that we would do, um, yeah, from a practical sense. And the other one we used to really do, which was a big one, which was um, we used to do it once a week. I've seen some do it two or three times a week, which I think is really good, is that we would give them a rule, a challenge, um, or an opportunity. So in a game, so on a Wednesday night, for example, would be a lot of conditioning, but we'd always, when the boys knew they'd be doing games, but each player would have their own individual like task or challenge or rule based on that IPP or based on feedback they've given me from say previous game or previous games um, on what they would like to work on. Um, and that's something that I found really powerful with, with even senior players that we would do that and then we would review after training. Again, they would have to communicate, whether it be text, email, whatever, by the next session, how they felt they went. Were they successful? Were they not? And then why? Um, so, yeah, that's, I guess, something we brought in that I felt really was powerful, even with senior boys this year. And how was that received by the players? Because I think there might be uh, a misconception or an, an, an idea perhaps that, you know, in, in the academies or in youth football, that all of these things are, are brilliant for players learning the game. But then when players reach a certain age, it's all about results. And to get results, the coach tells them what to do and they put the ball in certain areas and they win or lose based on the, the coach's kind of uh, ideas. But w- what you speak about there is probably players continue that learning journey into their 20s, maybe even into their 30s with, with that kind of growth mindset or that, that approach that there's still stuff that I could do better. Yeah, it's um majority um really, really took it on and really wanted to learn. So part of our when we did um our recruitment from the first year I was there to the second year, we spoke a lot about the characteristics of players we wanted. And the main characteristic of the mentality was a growth mindset and wanting and, and wanting to learn. Um so for example, last year in the context of our comp, we signed five players who'd all come from lower leagues or interstate, but none of them had come from a higher comp. 
they'd come from lower leagues and they all, whenever I met them, because I'd always meet any player I'd signed, I'd always meet them before. And they would have to, from that conversation, I'd have to walk away convinced this boy wants to learn and wants to be the best he can be. Um, and obviously juniors and academies, it's very different because you're not going out signing people. However, because at um, 14, you want to learn and you want to be better, not everybody then gets to 20 and stops even though there is a perception, as you say, that you get to that senior age or that pointy end. And it was so heavily results driven that everyone then starts thinking that we stop the process of learning or teaching or coaching. And I just think it's completely wrong mm. for me that, that we, we have to keep going. I'm 32 now and I'm playing under a coach who I get on with well. He's a very good friend of mine. And I love it because I'm back learning again. And that's something that if you've got the love for the game and you want to maximize your ability, I don't believe there's an age limit to when you, when you start or stop. I know, um, obviously my background with Bournemouth and I played with a lot of the guys who are there now at the club because a lot of the staff, um, obviously Eddie Howe, Jason Tindall, um, Neil Moss, they were all a part of that team under O'Driscoll and a lot of the staff throughout the academy are also part of that team. Um, I know they've got a fundamental belief in coaching and I think it was Jermaine Defoe I read about that he went to Bournemouth at 36, 37 and one of the things Eddie said to him in their first meeting was, I want to make you a better player. I want to coach you and make you a better player, which if you're telling someone who's had however many England caps and scored however many goals and 36 years of age that I want to make you a better player. I think there's such a, a belief in coaching, which um, is something that I certainly, I believe in a hundred percent. Yeah. And then it's kind of pulling at the same thread, but that building belief, I suppose, is if you're taking that individualized approach and you're taking time to speak to players about what they do well or, or the areas for growth, they're going to feel like the coach cares about them. They're going to feel like they can get better. And so it, it's a win-win. Like when you were speaking about, um, players still learning no matter what their age. I was uh, thinking back to, uh, there was some good interviews with Xavi Alonso when he moved to Bayern Munich, saying how he was learning stuff from Guardiola. And this is a guy that had played you know, for some not bad teams, Liverpool, Real Madrid, <laughs> yeah. and won the Champions League. And he's still in his kind of mid-30s saying, you know, I'm coming in and, and, and learning things that I didn't know, which I, I find like, um, it, it's interesting that players kind of younger or maybe less successful than a World Cup winner, Euro winner, would would not have that approach. And then the other thing I thought about is there's quite often clips on Twitter of of Klopp's and Guardiola's and you know top top coaches showing players what would be deemed quite simple practices. There was a there was a nice clip a couple of weeks ago of Guardiola showing Kyle Walker how to defend uh, using small steps and to block with one foot and block with the other foot when the player cut inside. And there was a few people on Twitter, and there was that one with Raheem Sterling where he was taking on his back foot that you know was going over and over and over. There's a few people on Twitter saying, "Oh, this is obvious," and I coach my underrates this. And you're like, "But that's okay, like because the coach is doing his job and and the players are getting better." So it, it's just that, yeah, an interesting kind of um, <laughs> worldview that when you reach a certain age or you become you know a first team pro, that that stops now and we'll just play the game and train and play the game and train. There won't be any time for learning. Um, I, I, I don't know where that comes from, to be honest. No, it's um, it's an odd one. I don't know if, like you say, it's just throughout time. And it's interesting you say about the coaching one because I know talking to people, because um, when I go home, I always try and observe as much as I can. And people often think that the higher you go, the training sessions are going to be something crazy in terms of how um, amazing they are. And and so it's, it's not football at times. It's a very simple game and we can overcomplicate things and it's... Um, and that's why I go on and it's different. But I remember when I first started talking about isolated versus um, holistic coaching and approaches to, to sessions um, and isolated practices were very much a no-no over when I first went through my coaching courses um, over in Australia, it was very much, no, you cannot, like isolated practice is we just don't do it. And me being me, I would ask why. And they'd be like, but it's not relevant or relative to a game. And I'm like, okay. But you're asking, for example, in these scenarios, you're two to pass out to your seven. 
But if he can't make that pass because he hasn't practiced it and gone through the repetition of the pass enough, then wouldn't that be something you would encourage? And it was just those little things. I think sometimes we forget that it's, it's players, there's no, no player in the world has ever completely mastered the art of passing, of finishing, of dribbling, of anybody, nobody, like I'm sure Messi's close, but nobody has ever got 100% ratio in every pass they've ever made, every strike, every. so we can all improve, everybody can improve. And sometimes it's the simple things that, like muscle memory, if you need to practice on your passing or the simple things, then, then we need to do that. And I just think that carries on until you finish the game. We're all improving. And I said the Shabby Alonso quote, it comes up a lot with Guardiola, doesn't it? That mm. people get, get to him and then it's like, and it's so, don't get me wrong, it's so intriguing to look at. I'm sure he does a lot more than just the simple coaching I'm on about. But it's so intriguing to see, I wonder what he does do with those players to get a 37-year-old World Cup winner and Xabi Alonso going, I didn't know anything until I met Guardiola. It's like, well, it really does open your mind to what, they're, what they are coaching. Mm. He definitely knew some stuff because he was quite good before, before then. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, conscious of time, so I'm just going to jump into the question cube. So, five random questions. Um, hopefully, yeah. might might start some conversations or, um, yeah, talk about coaching. So, question number one. Let me get in there. Oh, question number one. Which book would you recommend as a must-read for coaches? Oh, I'm going to sound so... You can't, so you can't say legacy. Don't say legacy because <laughs> we're, not, no, we're, we're not getting the click-throughs. We're not getting the, yeah, we're not getting the sponsorship deal, so we need, to drop, we need to drop saying legacy every podcast. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. That is something, though, that obviously I think every young coach should read um, and probably has now. No, I'm um, going to cut that out. You can't say legacy. It's, a, it's a, okay. not an option. Um, um, for me, I'm just finishing um, a book, uh, Ego is the Enemy, mm-hmm. um, which I think has been a couple of people have mentioned about it, which, yeah, is has been really interesting for me to read. And that transition from player to coach reading about that has been yeah, very good, very interesting. Um, yeah, and I'd highly recommend it. I'm still to finish it. I'm just finishing well soon, hopefully. Um, but yeah, very good. Are you are you a strong reader? Are you an avid reader? I find I do about ninety percent of my reading when I'm on holiday. Like the the the, the reality of finding <laughs> half an hour night to read a book is is uh, is not great. I'm good on the audio books and the podcasts, but yeah, sitting down to that's... read one is is tough. I go through stages with books. I can sit down sometimes and I'm reading two or three books over a month and then I won't read for months. But podcasts now for me are something that I've really gotten into a lot more uh, and really help. Like you say, you're, you're on your road or you're traveling or you're doing something, putting a podcast on us. has certainly helped me, yeah. Yeah, better use of the time. Okay, question number yeah. two. Um, what's the best course or event you've attended? Um. Okay, so this is completely different. Being my background other than football, during my time in the UK, I was actually um, a social worker. So I'm part of my role now working in social care with obviously children who have gone through traumatic experiences. We did a course on communication um, and it was amazing. It was unbelievable in terms of opening up your mind um, to that. And there's a saying that I kind of use it, communication is not what you say, it's what the other person hears. And it's so true that the amount of times, yeah, I would think I was talking and saying something and then actually understanding what the other person heard was nothing what I said. Um, so that was an amazing course. So, yeah, sorry, that was a non-football one, but that was something that I feel has really helped me on my journey. No, the, 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 I think the more non-football ones, the better, because I think everybody's probably aware of the ones that are offered through the uh, national FAs or local FAs. So to, to, to talk about stuff that's slightly different. What what did that um, what did that look like in reality? So obviously, um, maybe in a workshop or um, in a uh, closed environment, that would make sense. How did you kind of bring that to life when you were kind of out in the field or working in in uh, yeah. social care? When I imagine there's a lot of emotive subjects and a lot of um, oh, yeah. a lot of people um, that are passionate about the subject. So how did that kind of influence your your approach? It was, I guess, a big, and it's a huge part of my belief in that is 
the skill and the art of observation, the skill and the art of how you ask a question. Is it an open question, first of all? Is it with a certain tone of voice, your body language? All of these things come into how we communicate. Um, and yeah, it's so important. So we could be telling someone, so me and you could give somebody the same question, the same words, but they can hear it completely different based on all of the nonverbal cues we give also. So that's something that I guess now, as I dive into coaching more, knowing my players and understanding who receives certain cues, um, verbal, nonverbal um, kind of communication in the best way for them is, is so important. Where gone are the days that I talk to everybody with a stern voice and whatever. Don't get me wrong, there's a time, I think, to, where there's a blanket communication to everybody. But understanding your players and how they best receive communication was something that I took away from that. And it's not just players, it's people. And that's, I guess, working with people at that time and even now who have gone through a lot of traumatic experiences in their life, you have to make sure your communication is clear, concise, without judgment. There's so many things. It was, yeah, it was awesome. And then from a football point of view, I think that's one of the reasons I love coaching is the interventions because you can use the same intervention with the same player on different, you know, different days, different practices and get different responses. So there's times where I've worked with players and thought, I've got this player, I know how to, you know, how, how to motivate them and how to inspire them. And my ego is probably like, yeah, I've worked that out. And then you use a similar approach on a different day, perhaps when they're more stressed or not getting as much success and they just either completely blank you or they're not interested and you think, ah, I've got that wrong there. So like tailoring yeah. your, your communication strategy or your intervention strategy or the timing or whether you even need to intervene at all, based on kind of uh, the moment someone I used to work with used to talk about smelling the players. So what, you know, okay. what, what, what are the players doing? What do they need more of? And, and is it you know, time to be the nice coach, the hard coach, the, the stretch coach. Yeah. The, uh, and, and another thing that we discussed off there, I think the coaches um, kind of their, their, their strategy, their approach when they say, yeah, I use Q and a, and then you watch mm. them and you think, was that Q and a, I mean, it, it was a question. <laughs> was it a question? <laughs> So like, so yeah. I've talked a lot on these podcasts and with Dave about getting yourself filmed or making yourself up because I think how you think you communicate versus what actually came out and how it was perceived can be completely different. A hundred percent. That'd be one of the best bits of advice I give coaches is mic yourself up, video yourself, go into a dark room and watch yourself back for the first time because the first time you watch yourself back, uh, yeah, a lot of the times you really don't think you're coaching how you reality of your coaching is. Um, yeah, I think that's a huge thing that can really benefit benefit coaches. And we used to actually do a practical thing where, like, say, smelling the players that we used to, we didn't go that far, but we would, um, at the beginning of training, you know, the whole, the handshake, yeah. that everyone kind of promotes a handshake, but the reason behind it. So we had a, a player welfare checks at my previous club that, we used to have to check in on the boys and there was me and two assistants on a kind of weekly basis um, via text, just asking them how they are. And my challenge to my assistant coaches was, I want you to know about every player's family, job and background within, I think it was the first three months of the season. So I don't want you to talk really about football. I want you to talk about other things. And then when we meet them at the beginning of training and you shake their hand, you can then ask them something. You've got a, a kind of a question you can ask them or how are you how's your day how was uni how's mum and dad how's a girlfriend whatever and from their response and their body language you might get a bit of information that you didn't know prior so I might with yourself I might shake your hand prior say hey how is everything um how's the family you might give me something with your body language and your tone or something back that tells me do you know what Dan might not have had the best day today how can I either he might have been someone that I was earmarking to be the main part of my session. I might have to dive into a little bit more of this prior to then that intervention I give him. It might not work tonight. Do you know mm. what I mean? Does that make sense? For sure. Um, and, and with, yeah. with young people, just talking about school or yeah. like knowing what team they support or you, you, you get the same vibe. So you get like, well, like you said, whether they had a good day or a bad day, whether they're up for a challenge, you know, maybe they've done a school football game that day and, you know, today physically is not the one to, to stretch them all that stuff will come out in that kind of meet and greet um and just having 
yeah, having that non-football conversation also means you're, you're kind of, again, going back to that belief that you're, you're talking to them on a human level rather than a robotic transactional level, aren't you? Yeah, 100%. Question number three. Let me get in there. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, mate. That's okay. Um, describe your favorite small-sided game. So if you didn't know, I'm a bit obsessed with small-sided games. Um, so yep. different constraints, different uh, sizes, shapes, goals, number of players, overloads, underloads. What's your favorite small-sided game? Or maybe the question should be, what, what is the player's favorite small-sided yeah. game? Um, I love doing yeah small-sided game. Um I love doing scenario games. So I love giving one team one scenario, another team another scenario within the game. And then at the end, they have to guess. So I would give team A, okay, you're, um, you're one all with five minutes to go um, and you need a point um, to avoid relegation. The other team, it might be you're two nil down with five minutes to go. And you need to win 3-2 to win the league or something like that. So give them a scenario in terms of a scoreline or even a style of play. Um, and they have to, at the end, they would ask the other team what they thought their scenario was or their style of play was of the opposition. So, yeah, trying to give them some awareness, game awareness, scenario awareness of what the other team are trying to do and then adapt accordingly. That's something that I love doing with the players. Nice. And then to go back into the main part of the conversation, that's the Sean O'Driscoll piece, right? We're playing against a target number nine, how are you going to defend? Or we're not playing against that target number nine and we can do something different. And then those are skills that, that players are going to learn on training. So on game day, they can say, we're seeing this, we're going to change it into that. Like we, we need to play with a, another uh, line midfielder or you know, put the, put the fullbacks higher or whatever it is. Um, and the guys are playing the game rather than the coaches kind of uh, yeah, running it like American football. 100%. Yep. Question number four. I was like losing count then. Question number four. <laughs> um, that's similar to small side of games, so I'll skip that one. Um, how do you know if you've delivered a good session? Oh, this is a good one because, yeah, I had this conversation the other day when coaches walk away thinking they have and you hear the boys talking in the dressing and you hear this, you hear that. Um, feedback. Ask for feedback. Um, players, coaches, don't be scared of it. Don't be because if you put on a bad session and you think you put on a good session, you need to know because there's no point putting on 10 bad sessions and you think they're 10 good sessions, but the boys and everyone else is like, nah, it's about them. So don't be scared to ask them. Don't be scared. And take into context as well that they might tell you what you want to hear because they want to play on the weekend. So they're not always <laughs> going to give you that completely honest feedback. Um, so the ones within your team who you know are going to be honest with you and give you the the brutal answers, don't be scared to ask them. Um, yeah, and also coaches. I think utilising um, assistant coaches more and coaches within your team. So I, I see a lot where, as a head coach, he does this role and then assistant coaches picks up the cones, puts down that, makes sure the balls are from place A to place B. Why not sometimes ask your assistant coach to just monitor your behaviour throughout? Tell me about my interventions. What what could be better? Um, and yeah, don't always ask the don't always ask the nice fluffy questions to get the nice fluffy response. Ask the hard ones to get the ones that are really going to help you develop. And the the feedback is really interesting because I, I don't know if I've shared this on the podcast before. I've I've talked to a few people uh, through the Slack group and mental calls, but um, a way I tried to do that with younger players was if you imagine you did three practices in an evening i know people call practices and sessions different thing so three yeah. practices three 30 minute practices in an evening session imagine the way i started to get the players comfortable with giving me brutal feedback was i said yeah. which which one was the best and which one would you get rid of and they would quite often go i'd get rid of that practice because we don't need it or i'd get rid of that practice and you're like oh, okay cool thanks yeah. and then you'd also find <laughs> out what they liked and then it got to the point where i didn't have to use that strategy and they would just tell me um that's awesome and, and, and initially they like you said they look at you like oh, oh this is a test like i'm supposed to yeah. say that all the sessions are brilliant but, but giving them the choice of which of the three is the best which of the three is the worst and then yeah. the following conversation was whether it was the coaching setup like whether it was the space and the, the constraints or whatever or whether the players didn't have enough opportunity to do what they want to do in the practice so yeah there was there was one that was a 1v1 practice and the player said oh, i didn't like it and I said, but do you enjoy 1v1s? And he was like, well, no. 
So it was kind of a learning experience for both of us. So he didn't like the practice yeah. design because I forced him into a 1v1. And actually, yeah. it also gave him a chance to think, I've got to get better at my 1v1s. So that's kind of what coaching is. Yeah. If, if the players leave the, the session knowing I need to get better at that, but also as a coach, I know if I change this part of the 1v1, he might like it a bit more. Um, it's a win-win. Yeah, I like that. But it, yeah, it, good. It, it takes a while to get, to get there, doesn't it? Mm, for sure. I like that, though. I think it's um, important giving the players a voice and an honest voice. I would imagine the first time they criticise one of your sessions or say they want to get rid of it, and that's the one you spent the most time designing and putting together and being like, this is going to be such a good session. Then they're like, nah, not having that at all. Don't like that one. <laughs> and you're like, oh, great. But then like, the follow-up question is, like, what are the bits that we need to change? Because touch wood so far they haven't gone no no it's completely horrific get rid of it it's more like oh if you put more goals here or if we had a space that we could do this in or if i had a magic player that would allow me to and you're like oh, okay and i would say 50 percent of the time their ideas are really really good um that's good so it's like just ways of because they're quite you know players are playing a lot of football they have an idea it's not that we have all the ideas so it kind of ties oh, into your definitely. your your ego piece as well doesn't it um yeah definitely last question uh, what are your considerations when you plan a session um the purpose the purpose is being met hopefully by the end of it so um yeah you there's lots that go into it. You want to maximize a player's enjoyment being one thing. You want to obviously, depending on the session, is it technical, tactical? Is it conditioning? You want to make sure you hit those, I guess, those milestones or what you want out of a session from that point of view. Um, but yeah, also, do the players go away enjoying it um, and learning? I don't think you can, I don't, I don't think that the days are where Right, we have to do this session because we have to learn it. We have to understand it, but it's not fun. I think you can incorporate enjoyment and competitive enjoyment into all of your sessions, um, personally. Um, so, yeah, I think enjoyment's a huge part of it for me. Um, did you achieve what you wanted to? Or were you comfortable going down another, another avenue? I think that sometimes as coaches, we've got our session plans and the idea of where we want the session to go. However, what do we do if the flow of it or the direction of it has gone in a, a different way? Do we just abandon that or do we actually go with that? And I think I've found over time, I certainly used to be that the session plan says we finish after eight minutes. Eight minutes is done. We're moving on to this practice. Well, but what if after six and a half of that eight minutes, you can really just see them starting to get what you're trying to achieve um, and you want to allow them a little bit more success. I, I think there's nothing wrong with deviating away from it as well. So as long as you understand the purpose and the why, and hopefully you achieve that. And then reflection, self-reflect um, on all your sessions, everything you're doing, reflection. How do you reflect like physically? What does that look like? Um, so for me, I, was, I always had a drive home. Um, I always enjoy on the drive home, whether it be me or with the assistant coach, just thinking about the session, going over in real detail. So I'd like to say one of my skills would be that I'm quite observant as a person, I think, given my background away from football, what I've done. So if I feel somebody wasn't themselves tonight or they had a really good session, I'd often, and the players would say that sometimes I'd text them and their girlfriends would be like, is that Cootsie messaging you again? Like <laughs> I would message them at 11 at night being like, mate great session tonight do you remember when you did this this or whatever and i'll give them a little bit of specific feedback or if i felt somebody else didn't quite or there was something up i'd ask some questions so reflecting on that and then just reflecting on my own behaviors as well and being vulnerable to to actually say to the boys there's nothing wrong sometimes i saying to the boys i got that wrong my say like if i have a bad session on a monday i'll go in on a tuesday and I'm not a problem turning around to the boys and being like, boys, last night, for me, I wasn't up to the standard. Let's make sure I'm included. I'm a part of this. We raise it for tonight or whatever it might be. So I think that's important to reflect and be vulnerable and open and honest in your reflection. We can't ask the players to do that and behave in that way if we're not prepared to do it ourselves. Yeah, no, that's, that's powerful. Um, and again, there's, there's lots of kind of common themes here, isn't it? That vulnerability piece again and, and parking the ego, I think is 
is another kind of common theme from this conversation. Um, just before we wrap up, so you, like we kind of mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, you're now part of the PDP team. What, what, what does that look like and um, what, what bits are you enjoying? I know you've, you've been with us for a few weeks. What bits are you enjoying? Maybe the interaction with members or, or these conversations, you know, what, what are you experiencing so far? Yeah, it's been, <clears throat> for me, it's been a, an amazing, I guess, experience. I, I was a member. So for guys who, I guess asking that. I was a member for 18 months, I think, nearly two years. I knew Dave or met Dave, and we had a mutual contact in Hugh Jennings, who was an academy director with Dave at Fulham and was my academy director as a young player at Southampton. Um, so just um, ended up catching up with Dave in Melbourne for a coffee, which I think Dave likes having coffees in Melbourne. That's something he's going to miss. Um, he certainly <laughs> used to like a, a coffee meeting. Um, so we would catch up and just talk football. And then it certainly become, it was apparent that we aligned in certain values, beliefs, and I would give him feedback as a member on things I liked, didn't like and, and whatnot. And then just kind of, yeah, he, he, I said I was moving back to Queensland and he, he asked about potentially coming on. So I love the interaction on Slack. I love the conversations. Um, yeah, I, I like it when members come on and they share their ideas and their views and they, they ask questions and um, and challenge it as well. Challenge the ideas. Don't just, I guess, believe that everything that Dave, yourself, and me say is, is God. There's no exact right or wrong way. But um, yeah, that's something that I'm really enjoying. And yeah, um, getting used to and understanding all of the content on the site, and hopefully um, launching a yeah a new Q and A or new part of it in a podcast soon, um, which is exciting. Getting involved in all of that. So. I really enjoyed it so far and looking forward to what's to come in, in 2020. Fantastic. So hopefully we could uh, maybe pick this conversation up in maybe six months time when you've got even more involved and we can uh, continue the conversation. Thanks very much for your time today. Appreciate it. Man. Thanks a lot. No worries. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of On the Grass with James and Dan. We're delighted to bring our podcast listeners a limited time PDP membership offer. Head to playerdevelopmentproject.com forward slash podcast or click the link in the description of this episode now.